Hello, this is episode 57 of the Tomato Timer, and we have Ludo joining us today. Ludo is a third-year international politics student at the University of Stirling. He's the founder and president of Global Justice Stirling. He's also the secretary of the University of Stirling's volleyball club. He's interested in politics, journalism, social, and environmental justice. So good to have you, Ludo. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, guys. I want to kick off first thing with global justice. Now, it's a very big theme. Um, firstly, tell me what, what it means to you. What does global justice mean to you? So, yeah, um, global justice started out of a group of friends, like uh, most of the time happens with these mm. activist groups. And it was really the need for a group of people that uh, really felt... Um, strong values such as uh, social justice, environmental justice, and that mm-hmm. really just wanted to get together uh, in Sterling and um, change what needed to be changed and, and try to improve um, different things, I guess. Um, so our slogan is think um, global but act local. So I guess with the mm-hmm. a global idea, trying to implement stuff here in Sterling, where we're all studying at the moment. And how does your studies feed into this? So you're, you're studying international politics. Um, what are you learning and what, what kind of perspectives are you gaining from your kind of university studies that feed into the, to the kind of the work that you do through your society? Yeah, well, obviously, um, so I'm an international politics student. So mm-hmm. obviously with uh, Global Justice Sterling, which is yeah environmental, social and economical um, group that fights for yeah environmental and social justice, um, we try to achieve different kind of things and we try to campaign for different issues. Um, I think that the uni is helping me on the theoretical side of that, trying yeah. to understand politics better. Obviously, it's a very um, complex field. Um, there are so many overlappings from other fields as well. So there is so much to learn. And obviously, being on the loop with current affairs is not always easy. So this is kind of also why we we, we created Global Justice, to discuss and, and share and kind of teach each other and, and learn from each other um, politics, I guess, which is, you know, at the end of the day, I think politics is our everyday life. Yeah. Yeah, it's something we're not taught at school and many of us live our whole life going through the system and yet we don't know about how our politics, or even if our forget about national, but even local Kind of government, um, kind of city level politics works, and yet we're 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 in it every single day. Now, activism work um, and people who who are in this space often kind of like, um, maybe that's a little bit of a generalization, but they they're often like driven to do some you know task, some campaign, some some objective. What do you think? Why do you think studying is important for you? to to strengthen your activism work does does, does that make quite make sense as a question yeah absolutely absolutely um i think that studying is, is very important in the sense that you always need to remind yourself why you're doing that in the first place mm. obviously it needs to be sparked by some sort of um, strong uh, ideal or or values uh, in this instance uh, we're not even talking about ideologies in that sense for example for the for the instance of the environment it's yeah. a very much fact-based um uh, fact check issue um so i think that anyone from the political spectrum can really care about the environment and really call themselves uh, environmental activists whereas for other issues um i think that that is a different uh, situation 
for my example, from for my instance, I I tend to uh, with with our group, we tend to focus on a lot of range uh, of issues, and we try to focus on the intersectionality of these issues. So mm. we believe that they're all interlinked, interconnected, and that there is one one common theme. Um, and basically, throughout fighting all these issues and trying to do something on a on a local level as well as on a on a national and, and global level on these particular issues, we're trying to look at the big picture, though, uh, which I think is a really important thing, and which leads us um, also to why we try to uh, implement the Sterling Climate Festival in the first place. Uh, the main goal of the festival was really to try and highlight the intersectionality of the environmental movement and how all different kind of other issues that are affecting our societies today come and play a role into that, such as mm -hmm. uh, racism, inequality, or so many other issues. Yeah. I love the word that you mentioned, and I, I had an opportunity to speak about it at a, at a quite higher level form as well which is intersectionality. And I, I'd love for you to kind of give me a little bit of an explanation to some of the listeners who may not have heard it before. Yeah, so intersectionality, actually quite interesting. interestingly, we were thinking with Global Justice Sterling to have an educational next semester about it because I think it's uh, it's quite a complex um, concept and quite mm -hmm. a new concept as well that um, has become quite common, commonly used uh, now. Um, so basically, I would, my take is intersectionality is the interconnectedness in, in, in the different struggles and it kind of sets uh, its core is really to show that each struggle, each issue kind of sets itself on top of the other. Mm -hmm. It doesn't replace each other. Mm -hmm. So I would say that it's not a matter of I've been dis discriminated because of racism, I've been discriminated because of climate change, because I'm a climate refugee, let's say. Um, you know, we are different for that. No, uh, I think that intersectionality is kind of points out the fact that we're both being oppressed and therefore mm -hmm. we both, um, yeah, we both share the same issues. It's just from a different perspective. Yeah, yeah. I, th I think that's, yeah. Well, uh, allow me to share a little bit of a mathematical description of it, because um, if any of you have kind of done what Venn diagrams, you'll imagine, you know, intersections are always those kind of where sets have common elements in it. And it's it's a really interesting concept because as exactly as you said, we have so many social struggles at this moment of time, uh, social, but also environmental, you know, then we need to consider that humans and plants and animals, they're all in this kind of struggle together. Um, and it is this, oftentimes our, our struggles are accentuated because of the different intersections we live within. So as, you, as, you, as, a, as a great example, you know, racism and climate change and climate refugees, but what about those who are being, are facing racism and their climate refugees, and now they're in an intersection um, and they're facing both problems. Um, and, and suddenly these, some of the problems become so, so much more difficult. Um, we talk about um, income inequality um, and the challenges that um, th that come with it. But if you add things like, you know, uh, racism to that or you add kind of um, gender inequality to that, it suddenly becomes more and more difficult. Um, in the world that we live in, you're absolutely right. We're so interconnected. Our problems are no longer siloed. We cannot look at one individually. We need to be considering it in a more holistic fashion. I think um, 
just the fact that you know we, we describe the world as a global village right we we are connected to each other all the time we see each other's perspectives we see each other's uh backgrounds and values and morals and they're so critical in in how the world is going to be shaped in the future um i i, I would have loved to hear a little bit more about can and hopefully it is something that you may be able to implement through society because i think intersectionality is something we should be really discussing much more um that was my aside. I want to get into a little bit more about that the the festival that you set up. Now, tell me a little bit more about the festival, and then I have another question for you as well. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, the Stirling Climate Festival again was born out of a, a a group of friends. Really, it was um, a good friend of mine that really started the whole thing, and and, and kind of got us got traction with the whole festival, and kind of brought us all in. It really wasn't my mm -hmm. thing um so yeah lewis um basically brought up this idea and was like we really i really feel like there is need here in sterling to kind of highlight um the climate emergency um especially thinking about cop being two weeks after we actually uh, thought about that and and, and put it uh, the week of the 11th from the 17th of october um, because it was like two weeks prior to, to COP26 and we thought mm -hmm. that it was very important, Scotland being, you know, the host um, of this very important panel, um, we thought that it was so important to actually bring attention back to it. Obviously, the pandemic, the coronavirus pandemic, really brought the attention away from the climate emergency, uh, fairly so, but uh, at the end of the day, the pandemic will go away there is a vaccine for the pandemic, there isn't a vaccine for the climate emergency. So that was kind of like the first um, idea that kind of sparked um, the festival. Then obviously uh, a lot of months of organization uh, brought it together. And um, yeah, the, the, the general idea was try to offer as many events. We had uh, around 40 events wow. uh, from yeah completely different organization, a lot of um, societies from the university, but many NGOs and charities, mm -hmm. um, mainly from Scotland or the UK, and try to bring together completely different fields um, and show the different perspective of the climate emergency, basically from, from yoga sessions to planting trees to film screenings to um, art exhibitions. It was really, we really tried to show every side of it to show the intersectionality that there is in the climate movement. And I think that that was so, was another thing that really, um, that really shocked me at COP, see how many different people came together and see mm -hmm. the marches separated in all the, the, the little sections that basically represented huge parts of the world, huge issues around the world, huge movements in itself mm -hmm. that came to voice their support um, to do something to tackle this emergency that clearly affects everyone equally equal I mean that that's actually incorrect but um, you know that affects, everyone affects us all exactly yeah um, tell me a little bit more about the results you saw because these so many of these events have been bringing awareness did that did that awareness turn into action that societies or or people within the, the attendees of the events uh, take on next? So, yeah, our main goal was exactly to mobilize, especially pupils and, and everyone. It wasn't really targeted to students only, 
but mm -hmm. um and and so yeah our our aim was to bring to action um the reality is that it's it's always very hard when you do this kind of um work work mm -hmm. in the humanitarian work in, in activism uh, it's very hard to see the progress and the achievements um this is why i think they, they, they call it a struggle as well um because it, it's not something you can quantify the person you've inspired is probably not going to come up to you and tell you um directly so i think that it's hard but i think that um there was a, a very good support in the sterling community at least and hopefully we're looking to do a second edition and our aim would be for it to become a real tradition here in Sterling that is brought on by its citizens, by its council, mm -hmm. by the students. And it's really like part of the community and it just becomes a tradition that on the long term will very much raise awareness in Sterling as well as in Scotland and in the UK and maybe, yeah, inspire other small towns like ours to, to inspire, inspire younger climate activists. Absolutely. And I want to take us to COP now. Uh, I had the kind of uh, the pleasure to attend a couple of the days uh, near the end of it um, and I had an interesting experience, but I wanted to hear what you what your experiences were like. What part of the COP did you attend and what did you what did you get out of it? So I attended the uh, weekend uh, where uh, we had the marches. So it was the Fridays for Future March and mm -hmm. then the Climate Day of Action on the Saturday um, and then on the Sunday as well. So us with, with Global Justice Sterling, we, we went all the three days and my experience was very positive um, in the sense that um, I hadn't been it's such a big rally, it's such a big march with so many people um, ever, not, not, not that big ever. And it was, a, it was an incredible experience for me um, to see that there is actually so many people out there that one, want this to change, really want to tackle um, mm -hmm. this emergency. I met people from Belgium, from Spain, from the Netherlands, from Italy. It was mm. great to see some, some people from Italy that had arrived from my own country that had arrived in the morning with the bus and, you know, had come all the way up just for this. So, yeah, it, it felt very, very emotional and, and very empowering. Um, obviously, on, a, on, on the other side, COP itself was quite, quite a flop, quite a failure. But notwithstanding that, I think that the marches and, and, and the people and the civil society outside the actual conference was the real cop. And I think that's, that's, that was shown to the world. I had a similar experience. I was taking the train up and um, it was, uh, I think it was a Sunday morning and I just sat down and, and everyone around me was going to cop. And he just had these conversations with the the Mexican delegates and these delegates and, that, and I was like, wow, uh, actually met someone who was going to be, uh, who's part of Fridays for Futures and she was talking about her work and how she was going to be at the march. And you kind of, I can, I can completely like feel and resonate with that emotional side of things. It was, everyone was there and everyone was for the first time, I think, especially because the pandemic had, had kind of siloed us away for so long. We were finally like making a community out of it. And we were, we were without, with only a few words of introduction, we were, you know, we were talking about the most deepest and most important conversations because that's what meant most to us because we were thinking this is our future. Um, so I, I completely see then and that 
I think that sense of community is something that will remain, you know, we can, we can have events that come and go, but if you have people who've bonded together over a mission or certain values, they will remain for much, much longer. Did you get to, did you have a chance to read up or, or find out what sort of the kind of the results of the COP were in terms of the legislations passed or the kind of bills passed? Um, and did it reflect what you hope to get out of it? So the second, uh, I'll respond to the second question first, sure. which is it definitely did not, um, it did not stand up to our expectation, not even close. Um, so yeah, I did read up, obviously, to say that I actually read um, the whole results would be um, would be untrue. But um, what what came out of it, I think, was was obviously a, a good commitment on the side of all the countries to actually tackle this emergency. Actually, I think worth considering is is something that um, the director of, of of the organization we're part with the Global Justice Sterling, which is Global Justice Now. Uh, the director Nick Dearden was was talking about this and 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 saying that you know it's a huge step forward compared to COP twenty one in the sense that the climate movement managed to put this on the agenda and put it at the top of the agenda. Obviously, um, the huge um, weather catastrophe that has been happening helped with that as well to make global leaders uh, aware of the situation we're in. But I think that activism and the civil society was was a big part of it. And, and we brought it to the agenda and now we're talking about it and we're talking about it seriously. But the commitment falls short and and of a of a lot um i think that the fact that there wasn't a commitment on uh keeping um fossil fuels in the ground was was a big failure um although you know countries like um, denmark and costa rica tried to form this alliance um this symbolic alliance called boga that was supposed to be beyond oil and gas but no one signed up italy signed up as a as a friend friendly partnership country which basically means that we support it friendly but we don't actually commit to it so generally i think there is still a, a lack of, of political will from from the global leaders and mm -hmm. and i think that partly it's 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 due to to a few inconsistencies within within the, the un climate panels itself, um, the fact that there were more delegates from corporations than from countries, the biggest, the largest delegation was actually made of lobbyists from corporations, uh, some of them exactly fossil fuels. Um, when you are talking about uh, erasing and, 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 and phasing out uh, mm. fossil fuels, it, it, it does sound quite ridiculous. And, and I think the global leaders uh, are aware of that um so yeah it's just time that the, the people have clearly understood the threat it's time that they understand the threat too and i mean i think they understand it i think it's time they, they take act, absolutely. action on that yeah that's absolutely right and uh, my experience i i also was not there for very long but i i had the opportunity to go and sit in a in a panel discussion led by some indigenous populations um specifically those from kind of uh parts of alaska as well as those from the island of palau which is a, a pacific island and they talked about 
how the, so the island of Palau will be one of the first places in the world to be affected by climate change in the sense that it will go underwater with the rising sea levels. And Alaska is, is a place where due to uh, kind of the, uh, the polar amplifications uh, where the Antarct where Antarctic and Arctic actually get double the amount of kind of heat or temperature change just because of they're the poles of the earth um, and how their their way of life was being destroyed and this could not move forward. But they they also reminded us of something which I wonder whether you have any thoughts about that. These uh, people, these kind of communities and societies have lived in symbiosis and in kind of synergy with nature for so many years, you know, hundreds, thousands of years. And they have their own way of, 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 a, of a lifestyle, which actually is very, very, you know, it's, it's a give and take relationship. And I, I remember one thing that, that one of the attendees said, which was that for them gift, the, the concept of a gift was never just a, a receiving thing. Whenever you received a gift, it was always meant to be kind of given back, and it didn't have to be equal in terms of materialistic value. It was just about that if I if I give you a gift, Ludo, tomorrow, uh, I don't expect you to give me a gift, you know, or anything like that in the near future. But you know, maybe ten years later, you're going to give me something back. It doesn't have to be the same value, but it'll be something of an exchange. And they do the same with nature. If they take something from nature, they give back. And I think we've forgotten that part, especially as we grew further and further away from nature. It's the fact that we've, we've lost so much of the kind of traditional and kind of indigenous knowledge about plants and, and, and our ecosystem, but also the fact that if we're taking from something, we have to give back. Um, I, I felt that was a very poignant and very kind of moving moment to hear from the people who were, you know, from in the next few years, their, their homes would be lost if we did not do something about it. And they weren't fighting for like anything but preserving their lifestyle they weren't saying oh give us more money or anything they were saying don't let us suffer why are we suffering i don't know whether you, you you had any conversations like that or whether you think any had any thought about kind of the the indigenous populations or the people who lived closest to nature yeah um i think that is another um very interesting thing of 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 this cop in glasgow i think that the indigenous people not as much as they should have but where um, part of the conversation, at least, which weren't um, previously in the previous COPs. And I think it's very important because, uh, as you said, um, these communities are the ones that are at the front lines of the climate uh, emergency. And furthermore, they are the least um, that have caused any of this. So yeah. the 1%, the people that caused all of this are the ones farthest away from the actual consequences of this mm. emergency and the people on the front lines that are actually seeing the impact now of the climate breakdown are the ones that actually never did anything wrong or their impact is absolutely null compared to um, the western uh, the western countries in in the world so yeah, I just feel a, a strong sense of, of frustration and, and, and anger. And there were a lot of speeches after the marches uh, from indigenous people and they, they were all super inspiring. And, and most of them actually just made me sad because um, yeah. I just, I just yeah, I think that anyone hearing these people talk uh, understands it's it's like a, it's a human reaction you you cannot you know, feel empathy um and put yourself in their shoes if you were exactly in the same place um, mm. because at the end of the day we're talking about um luck 
uh, it's just geographical luck whether you were born um there i i could have been born on an island that is now at the front line um of of the climate emergency and i would like people to listen to me i would like people on the other side of the world that are not yet impacted by it as much as i am to take it seriously and thinking that anyway it's going to come and affect us all uh, sooner or later i don't understand why we're not tackling it now um but yeah we actually organized um a protest uh, together with um, uh, the Free West Papua campaign, um, and they are uh, indigenous um, indigenous led liberation movement um, that uh, is trying to basically get independence from uh, Indonesia, and um, their idea for you know the a new independent state would be what they call a green vision which basically is exactly what what you were saying at the start um having a, a mutual mutual beneficial relationship with nature that mm-hmm. doesn't exploit the land and its resources but that has something of a give and take relationship and um i think that 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 is beautiful and and it, i mean that at the end is the real um definition of sustainability which is Absolutely. a word that we throw around a lot these days, but that at the end um, almost always ends up being empty rhetoric. You're absolutely right. Ludo, it's been so good to have you, but we've reached the end of our episode. I think we've asked and understood a lot from your from your, from your your piece. Definitely going to look into more about intersectionality. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It was absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much. <laughs>